1: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
2: I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells.
1: And today we're discussing So Fine, released September 25th, 1981. It was written and directed by Andrew Bergman and released by Warner Brothers. The idea was reportedly conceived by producer Michael O'Bell based on his own upbringing with a dressmaker father. Lobel suggested Andrew Bergman take a stab at writing it, and it would eventually become Bergman's directorial debut as well, because of Bergman's earlier successes writing for Warner Brothers on titles like Blazing Saddles and The In Laws. The designer pants that serve as the centerpiece to the story were designed by Santo Laquasto, and they briefly considered producing an actual line of jeans as a product tie in, but ultimately that plan was scrapped. Uh, that makes sense. And when I said, I, just, I said scrapped, not crapped. Yeah. That would be pretty awful, though, too. Maybe that's why it was scrapped. The production was slated to shoot at New York State University's Purchase Campus, but after a last-minute cancellation, had to settle for the campuses of Drew University and Farley Dickinson University. I believe one of the models in the film, Gail Robinson, won her part in a nationwide So Fine contest in search of, quote, the girl who best suited a pair of So Fine jeans, end quote, but I'm not sure which girl she was, and some sources simply said that she won a part in a Warner Brothers product for film or television, so it might not have even been a part in this film. Right. The girl featured on the poster, however, is appropriately named Tony Mooney, girlfriend at the time of famous cocaine smuggler John Roberts.
2: I don't I, why is the girl on the cover not the main girl of this movie?
1: Because Cuz that
3: girl never wears the pants.
1: Yeah, there's that's a good reason. They
2: were originally hers though. I mean, not in
1: this fashion. That's true. They were made from her pants, though. The film only spent three weeks in theaters and made back about a half million short of its budget, which included a $2 million check for Ryan O'Neill in the lead at Warner Brothers' insistence. Really? $2 million. Jeez.
2: We insist. This is so bad. We want to give you more money. (laughs)
1: Yeah. They kept having to bump it up to get him. Bergman did not return to the director's chair until The Freshman in 1990, nine years later. O'Neill was honored for this role, among others, with a special Razzie nomination for Worst Actor of the Decade. (laughs) The film starts with the names of the cast embroidered onto a blue jean background, ending on the title, which then tears in half to reveal the quad of a university. The score is by Ennio Morricone? What a waste of his time.
3: Yeah. I'm sure he just picked up whatever scraps he had yeah. lying around
1: i think these titles were done by dan perry too the embroidery oh, yeah. on the on the denim the camera pushes through a campus building into the office of dr lincoln the school chairman we hear his voice through the door and it is unmistakably fred gwynn's inside the room he tells a boring story to several disinterested faculty members among them bobby fine as played by ryan o'neill has fallen asleep and is jostled awake by a co-worker It turns out they're here because Chairman Lincoln has to choose a faculty member to offer tenure to, and it's between Fine and Mr. McCarthy. He decides to quiz them both, asking them to finish a quote from the Merchant of Venice.
0: What should I gain by the exaction of this forfeiture? Pound of man's flesh taken from a man is not so estimable, profitable neither, as what, Mr. Fine? as the flesh of muttons beefs or goats i say to buy this favor i extend this friendship bravo mr fine bravo
1: on the way out mccarthy wants to know how he knew the rest of the quote
0: oh my father's in the dress business i always like the merchant of venice
1: we cut to bobby's father jack played by jack warden stepping out of a cab and into a department store with a garment bag over his shoulder. He's here with a late delivery to Mr. Augustine, who runs this showroom. While he waits for the man, Jack tries to peddle his wares to one of the women digging through the racks. He shows her how cheap the clothes here are by tearing the seams open with his teeth, and she's shocked. He manages to talk her into one of his own dresses with a price of $30 cash and ushers her toward the dressing room with one of them. When Augustine shows up, he informs Jack that it's too late and he has no interest in these dresses. On his way out, Jack stops by the dressing rooms again, and instead of just letting the lady buy it for 30 bucks, he busts through the curtain and tries to take the dress back before leaving. Later, at Fine Fashion Headquarters, it sounds like all the salesmen had a similar day of being thrown out of places. Jack stops into the accountant's office and learns that they owe just short of a quarter million dollars, and they only have $1,800 coming in. Jack is visited by a woman named Vicky, who seems romantically interested in him. She agrees to buy whatever he's hawking after a rendezvous in her hotel room tonight.
0: Around 8 o'clock?
1: Around anything you want. On her way out, Jack's accountant notices and tells him that her company is going under and there's no way she can afford to buy anything. A fabric salesman named Sam stops by to announce he has a lot of denim in stock, but he's waved out of the office. Jack gets a call from Mr. Eddie, the man he owes money to. He wants to meet face-to-face at a nearby sauna, so Jack heads there in a three-piece suit and tie.
3: Do you remember the last time we had a meeting in a sauna?
1: Last time we had a meeting in a sauna. It has to be more recent than Last Married Couple in America, right? Or was that it? The Blues Brothers?
3: I was going to say the Blues Brothers. There's another one, though. A business meeting, in a sense, because Last Married Couple wasn't a business meeting. Right.
1: But there's there's a business meeting in a sauna where a guy's complaining about his love handles.
2: Yes. Which one was that? I check your notes for saunas.
1: Or Love Handles. Half my notes are about Love Handles. Was it the Gong Show movie? Yes. I think it's Mm. the Gong Show movie. So I think Blues Brothers is still the most recent. There are Asian American men standing on both sides of the door that seem to be employees here. And they're played by James Hong and Danny Kwan for no reason. Yeah. Because they don't have a single line in the scene and they never come back after this.
3: They do have lines. They're just repeating. Yeah. They're
1: just like shouting sounds. But they, they don't actually contribute to the dialogue of the scene. When Eddie finally shows up for the meeting, he's played by Richard Keel, aka Jaws, so he's a seven-foot-two monster with slicked back hair. He shouts to Hong and Quan to whip him with plants, and so they do so obediently.
0: Hey, that that's real good for you, huh, Eddie? Couple <laughs> of the guys whacking his shit out of you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love the way Jack Warden says "fucking anything."
3: <laughs> he's pretty much his character from Dirty Work. Yeah, in more a- ways in than one. Though, yeah.
1: like he was his character from Dirty Work in Choo Choo and the Philly Flash too. He's just he's pops all around the clock, and I fucking love it. Everything he says in this movie. Eddie asks repeatedly for his money with interest, which he calculates to be a million five. If he can't pay up, Eddie takes over Fine Fashions. Jack follows Eddie to the showers to talk him out of it. Bizarrely, on top of taking over the business, he demands that Bobby Find start working for him, even though Jack's son doesn't even work for his own company. He yeah. has no interest in fashion.
0: New blood. He's there. Eddie! My kid's a professor. He don't know anything about fashion.
1: Eddie says his men are already collecting Bobby directly from Chippenango campus, and Jack disappears into a froth of bubbles in the shower. Chairman Lincoln is planning for the visit of a high profile guest named Sir Alec and Bobby is collecting the man from the airport now. We cut to Bobby driving the guy, and he sounds totally crazy. I thought this was going to be a scene about Bobby being embarrassed in front of important, no-nonsense author-slash-philosopher right. character, but Sir Alex sounds like a complete crazy person.
0: So, I stood at the window, mute, holding myself, you know. Well, I, I I, don't think I do And know. I said, civilization and its
1: discontents. Rubbish.
0: And so that's how a great poem was written. Huh. Amazing.
1: There was a car following them, being driven by two of Eddie's goons, one of whom is the late great Tony Sirico, aka Polly Walnuts.
3: Well, and and Bobby somehow is is aware enough to realize that he's being tailed?
1: Yeah, but no idea why, and yeah. he's not that weirded out about it. Bobby drives their esteemed guest along the walking path of the campus and then the goons start shooting at the car, despite Eddie's instructions to capture and enslave this man for the purposes of making and selling clothing that he knows nothing about. Bobby doesn't seem confused enough by what's happening, and instead of abandoning Sir Alec and running for his life, he picks the man up and runs directly to Chairman Lincoln, and then drops Sir Alec in his arms, while a pair of henchmen continue firing their weapons in the air. Bobby runs through the cafeteria, where he's eventually cornered by the men. We're friends of your father's. We cut to Jack's home, and somebody rings the doorbell. Jack answers to find his son and two of Eddie's goons. They leave Bobby here, but then demand that he meet with Eddie tonight. Yeah. (laughs) Weren't you guys supposed to take him to Eddie?
2: Why did you chase him? Why did you just wait for him to come home home and just give him the message?
1: I guess we needed a scene with just Bobby and Jack, so they had to bring him here first because the script dictated that. Bobby's very embarrassed that this happened today while he was driving a distinguished poet slash lunatic around. Jack tries to communicate the real danger these men pose.
0: You mean those, those guys, they'd actually kill you? Physically kill you? They'll kill me and go out for pizza. I don't give a shit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> every time <every> he <laughs> curses, I love it. But also it's like, you remember they shot at you earlier today. This isn't a fucking newsflash. Like, you know that they're killers. They had guns when they chased you around the campus. Out of nowhere, Bobby thinks he could swing a five-week vacation to deal with this problem, no questions. Yep. Aren't you up for tenure right now? Wasn't this supposed to be a point of tension for the full length of the film? No, we just remember that school doesn't matter for the next month or so. <laughs> Who cares? We cut to a nightclub called Mr. E, after its owner, Mr. Eddie. They find Eddie on the dance floor with his wife, Lyra, played by Mary Angela Mulatto. She gets hit on by an obnoxious man on the dance floor.
0: Hey, you are gorgeous, you know that? Nico! really especialidad. Let me alone.
1: Woo! The lady speaks.
0: I can respect that.
1: Eddie picks the guy up and throws him across the room. Father and son Fine join Eddie and his wife at a table, and Bobby and Lyra seem similarly entranced by each other. Eddie is literally having shark for dinner, which is amusing because he also took a bite out of a shark four years earlier as Jaws in The yeah. Spy Who Loved Me. They don't really say anything here, There's no conversation to be had between these characters, and eventually Eddie leaves again to dance, but suddenly Bobby and Lyra are just kissing at the table. I fuck around. The next day, Jack brings Bobby to work to introduce him to the staff. Bobby gives a prepared speech with a lot of Shakespearean references that go way over everybody's head, and they think he's a loser. We get a montage of Bobby getting less and less terrible at the job of clothing designer. At the end of the day, Jack admits that the salesmen hate him. Why? (sighs) I think you're a snob. That's absurd. Jack stays late to have more sex with Vicky, and when Bobby leaves, he's met outside by Lyra in a limousine. They head directly to her place. Bobby keeps asking for assurances that Eddie won't stumble in on them together, and Lyra doesn't seem worried about it. Eddie is at an arcade manhandling a pinball machine somewhere. Lyra puts on some music and starts undressing in front of Bobby at home before joining him on the couch. She admits her marriage is an unhappy one. She only married Eddie for American citizenship. She also complains that Eddie can't get it up, you mean he has a problem with impotency
0: no he don't have any problem he doesn't care
1: as they begin having sex bobby asks again how sure she is that eddie won't walk in any moment outside we see eddie walking home with the entire pinball machine up over his shoulder because he was mad at it for losing at it he throws it on the ground and kicks it to pieces outside the home and Lyra hears him and spots him through the window bobby runs upstairs and Lyra throws all his clothes in the fireplace for some reason He hides in Eddie's bedroom closet upstairs while Eddie and Lyra split a chocolate cake for dinner. When Eddie comes upstairs, Bobby tries hiding under the bed and has to wait hours for Eddie to fall asleep before he can sneak out. When he finally tries to sneak out, Lyra demands that Bobby make love to her right beside the sleeping Eddie and threatens to scream if he doesn't comply. The next morning, she shoves him out the door dressed in her clothes and when he bends down to inspect the demolished pinball machine...
0: Oh my god. Oh my god.
1: Lyra's pants tear open in little seams right above each of his butt cheeks. He tries in vain to keep his butt pointed away from witnesses as he sneaks back to the offices of fine fashions. Taxis won't stop for him dressed this way. Jack is at the office and worried that Bobby hasn't at least called, and his fabric provider, Sam, happens to be here with a load of plastic to sell this time, but Jack turns him away again. Obviously, denim and plastic will play a big part in the story moving forward, but between these two, he was here trying to sell cotton, which seems less relevant. So I didn't mention it. Bobby finally makes it to his father's building, and an emptying elevator full of people are fascinated by what they mistake for Jack Fine's latest invention. Bobby goes along with it and leads everybody up to Fine Fashion's offices to place their orders. Jack is very quick to pick up on the scheme and asks his secretary to get Sam back in here about that plastic for sale. In Jack's office, Bobby admits everything that happened with Lyra last night, and he's terrified it'll come back to haunt them. Jesus Christ, it's like a Bible story.
0: I gotta save a dress business by killing my son. Now,
3: when did plastic decide to enter into this? Because there's no plastic on his pants now.
1: Right, but I think he knows that you can't just have them open to the elements. You need to have a window on the pants. I,
3: I, but like ripped jeans aren't.
2: Yeah, but it's not your butt. Your butt. You'd want you want people to sit, on sit down on the subway with just a naked butt?
1: Mm-hmm. There's problems either way. <laughs> really, I mean, people sit. In bathing suits, with their butt cheeks exposed, like it's not the craziest thing in the world. The problem is that, really, the problem is if you accidentally shit yourself, (laughs) it's you're gonna have it on the window. It's a problem. I
2: I feel like that's probably a problem without the window, though, too.
1: Yeah, but at least you can just like wipe it up. But if you have like just brown streaks on your window all day, that's a problem. But maybe don't shit yourself in public. <clears throat> easier said than done my friend <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: jeez. way to put a lot of pressure on yeah. me
1: Sam pops into the office and admits he has 250,000 yards of plastic available and Jack buys it all we cut right to a commercial for so fine jeans with models with their full butt cheeks visible through plastic windows in the pants it's not like it was torn for him it's the right. full butt cheek is hanging out we get a montage of men distracted by the jeans and consequently injuring themselves or doing considerable property damage After the montage, Bobby seems closer to his father's level of professionalism, and he takes another moment to thank every member of the team one by one. He quotes more Shakespeare and gets less shit for it this time. That night, Lyra pulls up outside the fine house and puts a rock through the window to get back at Bobby for avoiding her these last few weeks. He opens the door and she waltzes in and tells him she's no longer interested. She demands to know if he likes her, and he admits he does. He goes further to admit that he's willing to risk being beaten by Eddie to be with her and they start kissing. Sometime later, Jack wakes to loud Italian opera music and finds his son on the couch downstairs straddled by the fully nude Lyra. Boy. I used to fuck like that.
3: (laughs) And we should say that it's it's Lyra is the one doing
1: the singing. Right.
2: Do you recall the last time a parent was watching their child have sex downstairs?
1: (laughs) Endless love. Yeah. Wow, I used to fuck like that. (laughs) That was weird when she said that. We cut back to the campus of Chippenango University. Bobby's back to his regular job, but dressed very fancily now that he's made a fortune with his so fine jeans. His fellow instructors don't understand why he'd come back when the fashion world had him surrounded with models with their butts hanging out. He tells them that there's one girl he liked, but she's married. We cut back to Eddie's home, and as he stretches in the morning, his arms knock something loose from the branches of a tree in his den. It's a men's shoe, but much too small to fit his own feet, and he deduces that Lyra has had another man here. Then he notices the brand of the shoe, and nonsensically, they are Chippenango Campus brand shoes. (laughs) What? But Eddie recognizes this is the school that his goons captured Bobby from. Before he can put it all together, though, Lyra is out the door and taking a limo to warn Fine. Jack shows up at Eddie's door with a briefcase full of money intending to pay back his loan, but nobody's here but Sylvia, their au pair. Isn't an au pair like a nanny? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why do they have that if they don't have any kids? Isn't a nanny for kids? Sylvia tells Jack that Eddie found out about Bobby, so he leaves to help his son. We see Eddie stop at a gas station and get in an argument with the attendant and then destroy a pump. We cut to an IHOP where Bobby's just finishing a meal and he's surprised by Lyra. How the hell did she find him here? Yeah, yeah. Do you guys recall the last time we shot in an IHOP? Oh, man. I knew you were going to say that. Ha <laughs>
3: ha. Fucker.
2: <laughs> Honky Tonk Freeway? That's right. Nice. I did it.
3: <laughs>
1: she tells Bobby that Eddie knows about them, and we cut to a poster for a local performance of Othello. For some reason, they've decided to go on a date together to avoid her angry husband. We watch a lot of a needlessly competent production of Othello. I'm like, these people can actually sing and the music's good. Why do they bother <laughs> for this like yeah. background opera? It's supposed to be like a school performance. Eddie arrives on campus and argues with another driver before flipping their VW bug over on its side. Do you remember the last time a giant person flipped a VW bug?
3: Um, oh my God. Uh,
1: Super relevant name. Yeah. To the plot.
3: I know. I can picture it. It was the professor who did it. It
1: was the professor Toru Tanaka.
2: I don't know which movie we're talking about. Uh, Chuck
1: Chuck Norris.
2: Norris. Oh, Eye for an Eye?
1: I,
3: was it eye for an eye? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. Nice. <laughs> Good job, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> You're
1: like it wasn't the octagon.
2: <laughs> Could've <have> been.
1: <laughs> Bobby introduces Lyra to the chairman and associates. One of the other professors borrows a key to Fine's office to fuck a student in it. Jack stops by the same gas station, and the attendant tells him about the giant on a rampage.
0: A giant? Was he well dressed? He was the best dressed giant I ever saw. <laughs>
1: For some reason, Eddie stops at a restaurant to get a full meal on the way, and a random college student tries to recruit Eddie for his fraternity? Is yeah. that what's happening here?
3: Well, I think he wants him to play the whatever sport that they were playing. Richard
1: Keel is like 40 here. What are you doing? He's not a college student. And,
3: and I like that he's like drinking a milk out of a giant beer pitcher. Yeah, he pitcher. got a pitcher of milk.
1: Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Eddie grabs the kid and demands directions to Bobby, and the kid knows Professor Bobby Fine, so he knows where to find him and where the campus is. Toward the end of Othello, a woman seems to be having trouble singing her part, and everyone takes note. Lyra knows all the girls' parts and heads backstage to offer to sing it for her, and she's looking for someone to replace her because she's embarrassed by what she's doing on stage. In Fine's office, the professor asks where the student got the idea to drop ice on their crotches as they climaxed, and she admits she saw it in a movie
0: where did you learn that thing with the ice cubes?
2: Hmm? It was in the other side of midnight.
1: Which is an insanely timely reference considering we just reviewed that movie for yeah. a Patreon pick last week for listener Louie Letizia. Eddie busts in the door to the office, and Bobby's professor friend tells Eddie that he's at the opera. Lyra takes the stage for the final song from her character, and when Eddie shows up, he chases Bobby out of his balcony seat, out onto the catwalk over the stage. To escape Eddie, Bobby sneaks out onto the stage and back under the bed that Lyra is singing from. Eddie knocks out the Othello actor backstage and pushes him through a door to change into his costume, which I'm sure Richard Keel will fit in. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie busts through a door on stage as Othello and joins Lyra to play the final scene and sing the Othello part in a clearly dubbed voice. But his lyrics introduce him as Eddie and spell out his character's actual plight, at least yeah. according to the subtitles. I don't speak Italian. <laughs> He waves Bobby's shoe in her face as Lyra claims she can explain everything. Eddie tries to suffocate Lyra with a pillow, so Jack arrives and swings out over the stage on a rope to kick Eddie unconscious. The curtain drops behind them, and they all get a standing ovation for their surrealist take on Othello. Amusingly, in Bob Saget's dirty work, we'll see another Italian opera, Don Giovanni, also interrupted by Jack (laughs) Wharton unexpectedly and applauded as though it was all intentional. (laughs) Crazy coincidence. You're ruining Don Giovanni.
3: Don oh, Giovanni? Who's that dude? <laughs> <laughs> I rewatched a whole sequence just because I it was like, I was just needing it. Yeah. And I think one of the funniest moments that gets me every goddamn time is when he throws the tape recorder over the balcony and it hits the
1: reporter. <laughs> <It's and> he's <laughs> sort of a bitch bastard. <laughs> 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 oh, God. Oh, <laughs> God. It's
3: just like so many of like these movies like uh, with SNL characters are just filled with these cutaways of just people getting hit with stuff. <laughs> and cursing about it. Yeah. Son of a
0: bitch bastard.
1: Uh, it reminds me of Luke Wilson's arm coming off in Anchorman.
3: Yeah. <laughs> this is getting to be freaking ridiculous. This
1: is getting to be freaking goddamn ridiculous. The chairman presents Lyra with a bouquet of roses for her performance and informs Bobby that due to his fellow professor being caught with a student in his office, Bobby Fine will be receiving the tenure they were fighting over. Outside, the police are arresting Eddie and amusingly, his driver's license photo only contains the bottom half of his face because he was too tall to be framed properly. We cut from Bobby and Lyra kissing on stage to Venice, Italy as they ride together in a gondola and Bobby reads from a large scroll. It's a declaration of divorce between Eddie and Lyra, signed by Pope John Paul II. They kiss again, and the camera holds for a moment as a second gondola follows them, with Jack and Sylvia, Lyra's former maid, sitting together, and Warden gets my favorite light in the movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How long has streets been
1: fucked up like this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sylvia tells Jack that Bobby seems happy, and they start kissing. And then on the sides of the canal, a female street vendor serves a few kids some food, and when she turns around, we see she's wearing so fine jeans, and her butt cheeks are hanging out. The end.
3: So that line, though, as much as I love that Jack Warden quote, yeah, like apparently, like the the movie opens with him quoting the Merchant of Venice, because like, oh, because my he father doesn't know anything my, about Venice, <laughs> knows nothing about Venice, <laughs> even though apparently he had done
1: something about Merchant of Venice with his son. Yeah. He read the whole thing with his kid and he didn't realize that the streets have been flooded like that this whole fucking time. <laughs> yeah. That was so fine. Um, not a great movie. I know we laughed at it a few times, but that's mostly because Jack Warden's just wonderful. Yeah. Um,
3: And I can't not like Richard Keel doing weird, random stuff.
1: His dancing on the dance floor is yeah. amazing. I really love it. <laughs>
3: and we didn't mention when he was in the restaurant, he's... I can't... What was the song he was singing? It wasn't Big Girls Don't Cry i don't remember uh but he's like he's singing like a like a song as he's like he puts it on the on the jukebox and he's like dancing to it and singing with his plate of food yeah and i was like this is just so fun oh
1: like, at, at when he's on his way to the school yeah when he yeah. stops
3: at the like the ihop or whatever yeah the that dance
1: he's, that he's doing when he's walking with his tray back yeah. to the table is great
3: but other than that
1: other I mean, than that the yeah. story's really dumb and Ryan O'Neill is just not good in stuff. Other than, other than Paper Moon, I haven't liked him in anything so far. Even Nickelodeon from the same director and also with his daughter in it. Like, didn't care for that movie. I, I really only like him in Paper Moon so far. Even like, I mean, people speak very highly of What's Up Doc. And that's it's it's probably his second best as, as far as stuff that I've seen. But it's, no, it's nothing compared to Paper Moon. He's so great in Paper Moon and everything else has been so frustrating. And this is so fine.
2: This movie doesn't make any sense no it doesn't i mean it's like supposed to be a stupid comedy but even on top of that i just don't i don't i do not understand it
1: there are movies that come up every once in a while where the concept is so far out of my realm of understanding that someone's like what if someone from the academic world got mixed up in the world of fashion isn't that just like writes itself and it's like no that does not write itself i don't understand why you think that those are is that a juxtaposition at all yeah i don't understand
3: also though they own money to the mob it's like no they don't own money to the mob the the debt is basically paid because he takes over the business yeah
2: so he doesn't actually take over the business like for some reason they get more time and then they come up with this great
1: thing yeah because eddie doesn't own so fine at the end
3: well well, because well, one because he's arrested, but I I also think that Jack Warden is is just trying to buy him back out. Like,
1: yeah, I think he was going to give him the 1.5 million right. at the end of the movie.
3: But until then, he took control of the
1: business. No, he said he was going to take control of the business if he didn't get his 1.5 million.
3: So he did give him more time.
1: Yeah. I
2: guess. I don't know. I also uh, yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> nothing about this movie makes any sense. Yeah,
1: we don't hear a, an explicit deadline, which is a problem. Actually, it's not like you have this long to give me the money. He just says, "Give me the money. Give me the money. You owe me 1.5 million.
2: I feel like the entire time they're also like poking fun at academia, and then, but at the same time. They wrote an entire end piece that is equivalent because Othello has, you know, a, a cheating wife in it or maybe not actually cheating, but like they're drawing all this parallels to these stories. But yeah. I just don't even understand how this movie feels about any of this stuff. Like, are they trying to be clever or are they trying to make fun of it?
1: Well, I think the bigger problem too is that the whole point of involving the the, oh, these two people are competing for tenure means that there needs to be, tension with the fact that he's doing this dress business instead of his job right and it needs to be a problem and he needs to be struggling that way not like you can literally just be best friends with the person who you're competing with
3: right exactly because like they were so friendly yeah and I was like oh they're, and they're it's just... not like
1: he set him up by sending him to the room to have sex with a student like it just by coincidence worked itself yeah. out so the whole school story is completely irrelevant and boring so there's really just an a plot which is we need to sell pants to give money to jaws End of story. That's the whole movie is we need to sell pants to give money to Jaws. So they sell pants and they get money for Jaws.
3: And we flash forward like four weeks. Right. And I was like. "What?" That
1: was the whole time that they had. Yeah.
3: I was like, "What?" there's just nothing. Like all of a sudden he's like, he's a big fancy business executive. Like he's like, oh, you really got the hang of this kid. It's like. The but, end. But why? Yeah. If he's going back to his old life, what was the point of him even learning any of these skills?
1: Yeah. And does he care about tenure if he's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year yeah. selling clothes? Because he could walk away from the job whenever he wants. Anyway, so fine. I give it a big thumbs down probably. Oh, yeah. Don't need to see this one. Yeah, Super yeah. avoid. Um, what are we thinking letterboxed, Jess?
2: So I have it pretty pretty low here. I have it at uh 124 out of 129.
1: We're pretty close.
2: It's pretty bad. It's below Choo Choo and the Philly Flash and above Student Bodies.
1: Oh, that makes me sad. <laughs> Sorry. You go. <laughs> Sorry.
3: <laughs> it's like, that makes Wait, why like. does that make you sad? I like
1: Student Bodies. Did you? Yes.
3: Yeah, what?
1: It's funny.
2: No, it's horrible.
1: Okay. Well, we can at least agree that it was pretty funny throughout.
2: It was so <laughs> unbelievably obnoxious. Okay. I uh, agree,
1: too.
3: I have mine at uh, 108 only because most of the stuff that's below that is like horror films okay, and stuff yeah. that I don't care about. Yeah. Uh, so this puts it below nice dreams, but above the burning.
1: Okay. Um, I have it in 119. So right between you guys, I have it under only when I laugh and right above hard country. Our director here was Andrew Bergman. Before this, he wrote blazing saddles. He also wrote, Oh God, you devil. The third film he wrote Fletch. <laughs> He wrote The Freshman, he wrote The Scout, and he wrote Striptease. See,
3: and I I like a lot of those movies. Yeah.
1: And as I said before, he came back to direct The Freshman. He also directed It Could Happen to You and Striptease from his own script. The music here came from Ennio Morricone. He's probably best known for his spaghetti western contributions, including the famous The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly theme. Uh, This was his only American comedy. (laughs) <laughs> the only one that he ever I think bothered he got to confused score. and yeah. thought
2: that these were chaps.
1: Yeah, maybe that's what it was. <laughs> no, he actually had scored multiple other films that had "fine" in the title, and so people jokingly refer to this as part of his "fine" trilogy because he had made three films that had "fine" in the title. But the other two were Italian films that the translations have "fine" in them. We've also heard his work so far in "Windows" and "The Island." He's back later to score The Thing, White Dog, Once Upon a Time in America, The Untouchables, and more recently The Hateful Eight, for which he was finally awarded his first and only Oscar for Best Original Score. Cinematographer James A. Contner, previously lit Cruising, Guild Alive, Times Square, and Nighthawks. He's back for Jaws 3D, The Last Dragon, and Monkey Shines. He has mostly TV directing credits since then on series like Star Trek, Enterprise, Buffy, Charmed, Angel, and Dollhouse. Editor Alan Heim, previously cut The Twelve Chairs, Godspell, Network, Hair, All That Jazz, and so far on the show The Fan. He's back after this to cut Star 80, Quick Change, Dennis the Menace, American History X, Adventures of Pluto Nash, The Notebook, and Alpha Dog. Ryan O'Neill was Bobby Fine. Before this, he was Tal Garrett on Empire in the early 60s. He starred in Love Story, for which he got an Oscar nomination. He was in What's Up Doc and Paper Moon and Nickelodeon. Uh... And Paper Moon and Nickelodeon were both with Tatum O'Neill and for Peter Bogdanovich in the 70s. He's Barry Lyndon in Barry Lyndon for Stanley Kubrick. He was the longtime partner of Farrah Fawcett from her separation from Lee Majors right around this film's release through her death in 2009 of Cancer. Jack Warden played Jack. We saw him in Used Cars last season, and he was in The Great Muppet Caper, Choo Choo and the Philly Flash, and Carbon Copy earlier this season. He's in a lot of bad movies, but he's the best part of all of them. Obviously, Great Muppet Caper's not bad, I know. But he's great in everything. He's also a juror in 12 Angry Men. He's Big Ben and Problem Child, and he's Pops in Dirty Work. Mary Angela Mulatto played Lyra. It's, it says that this was her American feature film debut, but she was Kala and Flash Gordon last year, but that was produced by Dino De Laurentiis, and maybe it's technically an Italian production. The name of her character was literally The Italian Currency at the time, <laughs> so it's kind of like yeah. naming a girl dollar. Richard Keel played Eddie. He was Big Dick in Deadhead Miles, Jaws in The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, and he's Golub in The Humanoid, Mr. Larson in Happy Gilmore, and he sort of reprises the Jaws role for a post-credit scene in the Inspector Gadget live-action movie with Matthew Broderick. Fred Gwynn played Chairman Lincoln. We saw him last season as Major General Corey in Simon. He's Frenchie Demange in The Cotton Club, Judd Crandall in Pet Cemetery, and his final film credit was as Judge... Chamberlain Holler in My Cousin Vinny, and of course he's Herman Munster on The Munsters. Can't leave that out. No, Of course. Mike Kellen played Sam Schlotzman. He was Lieutenant Rosen in Freebie and the Bean, Deputy Commissioner in God Told Me To, Leo in The Jazz Singer last season, and his final credit was as Mel in Sleepaway Camp. Joel Stedman played Professor Yarnell. He'll be the Assistant Vice President in Rollover later this season. Angela Pietropinto played Sylvia. She's Cicero's wife in Goodfellas and Mrs. Weiner, in Welcome to the Dollhouse. Michael Lombard played Jay Augustine. He was Sam Charlton in Crocodile Dundee, Erwin Goldman in Pet Cemetery with Fred Gwynn, and we saw him last as Charlie in Fatso. Jessica James played Vicki. She was Mrs. Simmons in Diner. Merwin Goldsmith played Dave. He was Maxie in a Hercules in New York. In The Empire Strikes Back, radio drama, he's the voice of General Reakin. Irving Metzman played the accountant. He was Sandy's lawyer in Stardust Memories and Applebaum in Fort Apache the Bronx. Later he's Mr. Bundles in Annie and Richter in War Games. Lois DeBanzi played the waitress at the House of Pancakes. This was her feature film debut and she plays Eleanor Roosevelt in Annie. She's also Henrietta Manley in Arachnophobia and the delivery nurse in Adam's Family Values. Ricky Liebman played Rick. He was Walker in Robocop. Tony Sirico played an associate of Mr. Eddie. He's Uncle Polly in The Sopranos and Tony Stax in Goodfellas. We've seen him so far in Defiance and a minisode review of Hoodlums and he just passed away in July of this last year. Michael LaGuardia played the other associate of Mr. Eddie. He was Stevens in Total Recall and a cop in Ghost in the Machine, the original. Chip Zine played Wise Guy in Disco. That's the guy who's hitting on her, who calls her Gorgioso. And he, I didn't recognize a lot from his credits, but he's Howard the Duck. (laughs) <laughs> and the duck? Bill Lurs played the gas station attendant. He's a TGRI employee in TMNT 2, Secret of the Ooze. Dick Bocelli played Lino. He's Gino Pontavini in The Exterminator last season, and later he's Rocco in My Blue Heaven. Margaret Hall played the sales lady at Bergdorf's. She's Bernie's secretary in Weekend at Bernie's. James Hong played Asian Man Number 1. He's Lo Pan in Big Trouble in Little China. He's Mr. Ping in the Kung Fu Panda series. He's Hannibal Chu in Blade Runner. Cassandra's Dad in Wayne's World 2. Evelyn Mulray's Butler in Chinatown. He's in a couple of great MacGyvers. We've seen him so far in Airplane as the passenger who hangs himself. And he's back right around the corner in True Confessions.
3: I think, doesn't he commit uh, Harry Carey?
1: Oh, maybe. There's a few different suicides next to him. Yeah. I can't remember which one he is. But he kills himself because he doesn't want to hear yeah, Striker's y- stories. Exactly. Tyra Farrell plays a receptionist. This was her first credit. She plays Nurse Blaine in The Exorcist 3. She's Mrs. Maker in Boys in the Hood. Rhonda Dean in White Men Can't Jump. And Jesse in Poetic Justice. Joseph Alardi played Gus Triconopolis. No credits I recognized, but his name is weirdly similar to the director of Touched by Love, Gus Triconis. So it's just they just added an op in the middle honest opolis not really john eric bentley played elevator starter elevator starter like yeah. i don't remember maybe there was one uh he's perry and arthur he's a busy voice actor he does nick fury and a few video games he's the voices of super mutant and neil in fallout new vegas he's cleric and forge in final fantasy 13 He's Nick Fury in Spider-Man Unlimited, and most importantly, he's Barrett Wallace in the Final Fantasy VII Remake. John Stockwell played Jim Sterling. This was his feature film debut. He also works as a writer and director. He wrote Cheaters, Rockstar, and Blue Crush, and directed Into the Blue, Teristas, four episodes of The L Word, and the 2016 Kickboxer sequel, he was also, I believe, briefly attached to a feature I wrote about competitive wakeboarding after starring in a wakeboarding short from the same producers. Webster Winery played Boy in Volkswagen. He played Sammy in The Exterminator last season. Randy Jones played Campus Cop. Most of his credits are from being the cowboy in The Village People, which is where we saw him last season in yeah. Can't Stop the Music. Christopher Loomis was the other campus cop, and we saw him as Mark Felton in The Nesting earlier this season. Hilah Mero played a nun. We had her recently as Disco Girl in Maniac, and she's back as Rosie in Vigilante next season. Abigail Clayton played the other nun. She also showed up in Maniac as Rita. Jim Jansen played Conductor. He was Mr. Mitchell in a Dennis the Menace TV movie. He's Reverend Archie Skinner on The Gilmore Girls. Pierre Epstein played prompter. He was Dr. Hess in Splash and Rabbi Minch in Three Sex and the Cities. Anita Morris played a So Fine Dancer. She was Carol Dodsworth in Ruthless People. Terry Treas played another So Fine Dancer. She was Kathy Frankel in Alien Nation. Sib Barnstable was a model uncredited, and she played Betty on Quark. Richard D'Alessandro played a stagehand, and he was Abby Hoffman in Forrest Gump. Those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for So Fine. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Southern Comfort, which IMDb describes like so. During a routine exercise, a team of national guards are threatened by angry and violent locals. We leave you now with a trailer for Southern Comfort.
0: It will show you as much about survival as deliverance. As much about human courage as Midnight Express. As much about armed conflict as apocalypse. Now, the bayous of Louisiana, the home of a little-understood group of Americans. They're a peaceful people as long as they're left alone. Everybody out of the truck. The National Guard on weekend maneuvers. In 48 hours, they'll be home with their families. There's only one problem. We you back in here. This is our home. They've crossed the boundary into a territory where they don't belong. We ran into some people that are real weird, and I think maybe they're trying to kill us. They violated laws they never knew existed. Somebody figure out where the hell we're going to do it, quick. Gotta go east to go north. Tell that damn man. And the farther they go, the closer they get to nowhere. Uh, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna fight my way out Hospitality, unless you don't belong there.